Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where a woman from the right and a woman from the left accessorize the news with a fresh perspective. Hi, this is Sarah Holland from the left. And Beth Silvers from the right. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We're so excited to have everyone here listening with us. And we wanted to ask if you could please sign up for our new email list. We will be emailing out each new episode along with the show notes and coming up soon, some unique content that won't be available anywhere else. So join us on that email list. It's the way to sign up is pinned to the top of both our Twitter page and our Facebook page. This week in the Pearls, we have to talk about the two debates. This week was almost like uh, the beginning of March Madness, you know, for political junkies. <laughs> so we'll start with the Republican debate. I'm I'm not going to just sigh into the microphone, but that's mm. how I feel, Sarah. Mm. I, I feel like we are all a little worse off for having watched this debate. <laughs> you know, it's just... 
I was very frustrated because the moderators, this was a debate about the media, in my opinion, not the voters. The moderators Mm. were itching, as the rest of the media was, for this Cruz versus Trump face-off. Yeah. And that's what they got. And I guess that's entertaining, but it does not inform anyone. You know, Trump beating up Cruz over whether he's eligible to run and Cruz talking about New York values and the two of them just sparring back and forth, it doesn't do anyone any good. So I was frustrated about that. Really, the only person who I thought actually talked policy in a helpful way was Jeb Bush. And and I thought he had some terrific answers. Unfortunately, they weren't covered and they were just lost in all of the madness. The other thing I wanted to point out about this debate is a little bit sad for me. Um, I really like Chris Christie. I'm liking him more all the time. But I need him to stop referring to our president as a child. Yeah. Um, he he went back again over the executive actions and, and used his petulant child line. And I get it. I mean, I understand. I don't like the executive actions either. I think some are unconstitutional and many are unwise. But this is our president. And I just, you know, for the most part, Chris Christie has stayed above the fray. I think he needs to, he can hit the Democrats hard without resorting to that kind of language. I just think it's beneath the conversation. So this was really disappointing for me. I don't know how you felt about it. I I just was very frustrated at the moderators, frustrated with the candidates, and sad that this close to the Iowa caucus, we couldn't have a more substantive conversation. Well, I think you're not going to get a substantive conversation when everybody wants a horse race between Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Wait, let me think. Not everybody. Some people, people who sell things, want a, Trump, yeah. Trump, <laughs> a horse race between Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. And yeah, the, the bomb, 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 bomb. And it was a very um, just who can yell the loudest and who can say that most absurd thing. And it just seems to be like everybody's trying the Trump strategy for attention. Even I saw Marco Rubio on, um, I think it was meet the press or face the nation. I don't remember which one. And he was even taking this incredibly hard line against Iran. Well, I would undo everything Obama does and I would make it harder. And it's just kind of like, Hey, can somebody find a different a way to differentiate themselves besides who could insult President Obama the hardest and who can say the most absurdly hawkish thing? Like, I don't know. I, well, and he oof. apparently said this weekend that he bought a gun to protect his family oh, from yeah. ISIS. At least that's how it's been reported. And I heard that. That's just really disappointing to me. I mean, I, I've not been on the Marco Rubio train the whole the whole way, but... But I'm certainly not going to jump on board at this point. I mean, he is, you're right, just taking a page from the Trump playbook. And, and guys, Trump is the best at being Trump. Yeah, You're not going to beat Trump at being Trump. That's a really good, I think that's a really good point, which is this only works if you're him. Although, why is Ted Cruz doing so well? I don't understand. That is an outstanding question. That why I isn't an there some, yeah, why isn't there somebody who is... You know, the anti-Trump, somebody who's like this reasonable, I just don't, I don't understand why there isn't a biggest, a bigger difference between the front runners. Although 
I argue that there's not that big a difference between the Democratic frontrunners either. So maybe I'm answering my own question, but. I don't think so, though. I think it's very different because the, there's not a big difference between the Democratic frontrunners on policy. Yeah. On the Republican side, we're also looking for style, right? Yeah, that's And there's a, good a point. huge difference on the Democratic side in terms on of style. style. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Jeb Bush could be that person. I, again, I, my refrain with Jeb Bush is I think he has a whole lot of really smart people working for him who are doing him no favors. Mm-hmm. If you listen to his answers in this debate, he is a very strong leader. He said some hard things to say. And then he just kind of looked incredulous as the moderators just scooted on to the next dogfight. Yeah. And, and I just, I'm, I'm so <sighs> frustrated with him at this point because he, I think he could be such a good leader for us. But alas, so onto the Democrats then where I, I think you're right. There isn't a whole lot of daylight on the, on the substance of what they're saying, but how they're saying it, it's a world of difference. I mean, well, I was not going into this debate, probably the most objective observer, because I got really riled up on Facebook um, about sort of this idea that Bernie's the only person that has passion and how could how could you as a progressive support Hillary Clinton and the fact that in this kind of line coming out of Bernie Sanders camp and my friends who support Bernie Sanders that he, you know, she is a ridiculous choice and it just sent me over the edge because I think I realized like there's such a short memory. This is the, this sort of progressive savior who's going to change the system is exactly what I heard about president Obama. And I like president Obama and I think he's been a good president, but I think we can all acknowledge that it's a little more complicated than that. I kept thinking last night during the democratic debate that I wish they would have looked to Bernie Sanders and said, okay, well, if you can't get any of this financial reform passed, then what are you going to do? Because that's the only thing he talks about. And it's the frustrating part. It's like watching an Aaron Sorkin show. I agree with you, but you're driving me away. Like, I understand. I'm just not, you know, I think that there's an important role for activism in everything. I do not think that is the role of a president or really a representative. I mean, that's not people are like, oh, well, she shifts based on people's opinions. Yeah, she's a representative. That's what that means. You represent where people are right now. You don't, you know, I just don't see this activist role at for a president. That's just, you know, in college, the big debate was, are you an in-the-system or an outside-the-system person? I'm an inside-the-system. I think there's an important role for people that are outside the system. Obviously, I think the Black Lives Matter movement and activists like that are wildly important. And I think you saw the impact of that movement last night in the very forceful answers on systematic racism within the criminal justice system from both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. Like, those answers were strong and really wonderful in my opinion and i think they are a direct result of the activist activism from the black lives Mover, movement matter black lives matter movement but you know it's just i mean I, I said at one point on twitter if you were drinking every time he said wall street you would have alcohol poisoning like every question healthcare well it's because the pharmaceutical companies you know any type of any issue he just brought it back around to that and it's just ex- the mill you know if it's about war it's about the military industrial complex and it's not like again you're like aaron sorkin like i agree with you you don't have to beat me over the head with it like there is there's no nuance with bernie sanders i feel like going back to our favorite word it's just all the time wall street wall street wall street wall street wall street and i just he really wore me out with it last night more than usual i thought she did a really great job 
I thought she was strong. I thought particularly she ended very strong by being the only candidate to bring up this Flint water stuff, which the more I find out about it is just insane. So I was happy with her performance. That's for sure. She's had a hard time answering in a really succinct way. Why do you want to be president? And I think her opening last night helped me understand why that's been hard for her to answer because her premise is, because I can do it all, because mm-hmm. I'm not a one-trick pony, mm-hmm. because I'm not focused on only one thing. I'm not trying to be president just to deal with Wall Street or just to deal with foreign policy. And I think that's a good answer. It's just, it's hard to sell. I, I saw her interviewed on one of the morning shows uh, while I was traveling this week, and she was asked, tell me quickly why you want to be the president. And she couldn't do it. She went on and on and on. But it is because she kind of dabbles in everything. And when you step back, that's a good thing. It is a, it's a huge job. And having somebody who's well-versed in every part of it is really important. Well, nobody wants to hear because I'm super qualified and I work hard. That's really the reason Hillary Clinton will be a fantastic president because she's super qualified and she works so hard. And also, I think that's a really tough question generally for a woman to answer. Like, you know, last night on Twitter, somebody said, she wants it too badly. You have to want everybody. If you're running for president, you want it badly. But like people are uncomfortable with women, with women wanting, being ambitious and wanting something like that badly. And that's just a tough spot. I think that's a tough thing for her to answer. And, you know, people, oh, she's so calculating. Of course she's calculating. Anybody running for president is calculating. How do you get to be president without calculating? You just look into it. You know, it doesn't work like that. I think there's a parallel to Jeb Bush here too. Yeah, Because I think both of them are pragmatists, are in the system people, are hard workers, competent, intelligent, thoughtful, and really having a hard time. I mean, if Hillary Clinton were in a field of 14 or whatever we are at now, 10, um, I wonder if she would have as much trouble as he is breaking through all of that noise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that she... I feel like he should be having a, an easier job of doing though what she's doing of saying like, I'm, you know, I'm the reasonable candidate. I'm the one who's qualified Maybe up against the noise of Bernie Sanders. But I think also she has the bonus. Why it's sometimes it's a hindrance. She also has the very, like she sort of has the best of both sides because she can be the uber qualified hard worker, but she also has this idea of, but I am a vision for this country because I'm the first woman president and that changes everything. So she has kind of a little bit of both, which is nice. And she can still, even though she isn't an outsider in a way she is, because she's a woman and she, that is an outsider status. If you're the first female president. So she, I mean, she has the best of both worlds. Anyway, I mean, I think she, I thought she did really great last night. I don't understand why Martin O'Malley is still up there, but it's fine. He was He's, pretty good last night though. I thought he was wearing me out. I, I really like that boots on the ground story he tells, except he tells it a lot. And so it loses its impact if you keep telling it. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't sound sincere when you're like, oh, I just remembered this story. Yeah, the same one you remembered at the last debate. It's just weird to me. Well, the whole conversation was like that. That was my main criticism of the moderators, who I thought for the most part did a really nice job because they weren't the focus, you know? And they were shutting Um, it down. Lester Holt shut everybody down on that stage down several times. Like, no, we're moving on. So I thought they did a great job, except that these were the same topics we've heard in every previous debate. Yeah. Why aren't we talking about education? I don't understand that. 
why aren't we talking about reproductive health? Like, and I think somebody on Twitter made the point of like, why are they only asking Republicans about this? Like, ask Democrats about reproductive health too. It's important. Like, it, there's things are changing. The law is shifting. I don't know. And also, I just think that um, it's really important to. I don't know. I thought that I thought the moderators did a good job, but why? Why are we still asking questions about Bill Clinton? Like, it's an interesting thought experiment to think about the first male spouse. That's an interesting thing to think about. It is not important enough for a debate. Why do they well, keep asking a, that? It's not a debate question. And this yeah. was a problem I had with the entire Republican debate and parts of the second debate. We have to kind of step back and say, what is a debate supposed to be? And if it is supposed to be many interviews of the candidates all standing beside one another, then let's call it something else. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, because what are they supposed to debate what, between the three of them about Bill Clinton? Right? Right. There's nothing to debate. There's nothing to be- debate about Ted Cruz's eligibility to be president. Yeah. They're, they're just a whole host of Well, there topics. might be, but it's not for them. It's for the Supreme Court. <laughs> well, exactly. That's the thing. That let, let's, let's debate things that are debatable. And I just feel like that's not part of the equations right now. It's just kind of a ratings bonanza. I think it's designed to produce clips for the, the shows the next day. Um, things for people to write about. I, I do feel like the debates are just becoming a forum for media to perpetuate itself. And I don't, I don't say that with a lot lot of criticism. You're right. I mean, those are people who have to make money and they're doing what they do. The parties should step in and, and make some changes here. Well, I think truthfully, and this is probably a good note to wrap up on. I think we have debate fatigue. I think we all have debate fatigue and we are not even to Iowa yet. We have debate fatigue, but don't you think it's because we keep saying the same things over and over? Yeah, because we're not, it's not making any progress. We're not getting anywhere. I mean, I think this long cycle has been good in a lot of ways. As tired as everyone is of it, we've learned a lot about these people. Yeah. And that's important, especially when there are this many of them. Mm -hmm. I, I would advocate for more debates if we could actually debate. Yeah, I agree. Okay, well, moving on, we're going to compliment a person from the other side. And I'm going to start. I'm going to compliment David Brooks, the conservative columnist from the New York Times. Um, Obviously, I don't always agree with his politics, but he's been doing – he wrote a book um, called The Road to Character recently. And he's been doing these – the series of columns sort of about how to have good character and how to live a good life. And I just think they've been really beautiful. And also, I think character is a – tough thing to talk about without being preachy and without being insensitive. And I think he's done a pretty good job of it. So hats off to you, David Brooks, and I highly recommend those columns. We'll put them in the show notes. And I similarly have praise for Mika Brzezinski. Everybody who listens to us knows that I'm a big Morning Joe fan. And I I have learned a lot from Mika Brzezinski that I have particularly applied to my business life on how to state your disagreement as a woman without apology. She's doing this know your value tour and series and she has a book out. I think she is a really great model for women and, and especially women who are relatively new in their careers um, for just being straightforward and honest and not trying to 
be a man. There's all this advice for women in the workplace about basically how to masculinize yourself. She doesn't do that. She just says, hey, you are a woman and you bring a lot to the table as a woman. So do that and and don't constantly be building um, walls and excuses and softness around yourself in the process. So I, I really appreciate that example. And, and I'm happy to be able to get a taste of it every day through her show. Nice. I like that. Okay. Well, that's the end of the pearls. We'll be moving on to the suit where we're going to tackle the um, emotionally charged topic, I would argue, of political correctness. So today in the suit, we want to talk about um, a topic that gets a lot of press, but we feel like maybe not so much nuance, and that is the issue of political correctness. Definitely lacking in the nuance on this one, because I think we're all talking about different things, even when we use the expression. Right, absolutely. And that's where we wanted to start. We wanted to start with what are we actually talking about when we talk about being politically correct or PC. And so um, I think, my, at least for me, what that always meant growing up was you tried to be very careful not to use um, offensive slang or slurs or to consider um, how you, what you were saying would make a member of the minority or another gender feel. What did it mean for you, Beth? I think the same thing, just being cautious about your language, trying to be aware of people who might be different than you, which I think is a totally different concept than the way we're using political correctness right now. It seems to have become shorthand for sort of all intellectual elitism um, and all sort of ideological censorship. I don't know. It seems like everyone who is hostile about something right now um, wraps all their hostility around this amorphous concept of political correctness. Yeah, I feel like people really what they're saying is you won't let like it's it's a little bit like oh, but you won't let me be hostile. You won't let me say what I want without any concern for other people. I feel like sometimes that's what I'm hearing. Well, and I think there is a sense too of uh, you won't let me be heard. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's where the hostility is coming from. Like, I can't I can't say anything without someone coming at me um, and telling me that what I say is offensive. So I think this, like, offensive seems to me to be the key because I feel like the people who are so frustrated by political correctness maybe feel that we've become a culture that is, like, itching to be offended instead mm-hmm. of one where we're actually trying to exchange ideas. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. 
They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Well, so last year around this time, Jonathan Chait wrote an article for New York Magazine that I found when I was sort of looking up the politically correct debate um, called Not a Very PC Thing to Say. And, you know, he was pretty assertive and um, strong in his belief that politically correctness had gone too far, that we were um, suppressing speech. And, you know, this is something, a little bit of something that we got into on one of our earlier episodes about college campuses. And I think college campuses in particular get this reputation for being um, too easily offended and um, overly concerned with how, how speech is making other people feel. But when I was looking up some of the responses to Chait's um, article in New York Magazine, I found this really great piece by Megan Carver in The Atlantic. And I'm going to read a little bit of it because I thought that it was so good. It was called An Optimist Guide to Political Correctness. Side note, I'm a sucker for anything that's an optimist guide to whatever (laughs) we're talking about. Absolutely. But she said, um, but categories expressed as language can also be, in their way, expressions of empathy. They are proxies for curiosity, which is itself a proxy for sympathy. Identifying oneself as cis rather than straight or offering a trigger warning on a Facebook post or frowning at the use of an outdated adjective or stepping aside so that someone with a more relevant experience can speak. These are cultural shibboleths. They are awkward, maybe, and they can be done to excess, but they are also made generally in good faith. And that is, when it comes to liberalism as everything else, not a small thing. They are gestures that basically say we're trying to see from each other's viewpoint, to respect each other's experience, and to understand, if not agree with each other. And I just thought that was so 
good. It really spoke to me because, you know, from my own personal experience, that's what I'm really trying desperately to do. And it is awkward. It's awkward a lot. You know, somebody reached out to us and said, don't say homosexual. That's not like really a term people use, say gay or queer. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. I felt embarrassed. I felt vulnerable. I felt like, you know, it's it's easy when you're in that space to get defensive and to be like, well, I meant well. And, but I think that there's always growth available. If you can just take a breath and think, okay, wait, is there any truth to what they're saying? Where's that person coming from? And I guess I kind of feel like if they're coming from a good place, there's a way for you to learn from it. And if they're coming from a bad place, then why does it bother you anyway? You know, like there's nothing you can do about that. It's sort of not to get all, I feel like I'm, leaving the political realm and and encroaching into sort of self-help my favorite type of discussion. But like, I don't know. I feel like sometimes politically correctness when somebody's, if you're feeling attacked by that, maybe it has more to do with that person than with you. Well, I love some good help, self-help advice also. And I mean, I think part of the reason, Sarah, that we feel the way that we feel about politics is because we like that side of things too. Mm -hmm. I mean, politics is a very vulnerable subject. And and I think when it loses its vulnerability, that's where we cross into hostility. So yep. when I, I'm glad that you brought up the example of the person who reached out to us about um, the way to speak about um, gay relationships, because I felt like it was I felt like that was an example of how you do this. Mm-hmm. You know, this person reached out. It was not hostile in any way. Um, she didn't insult us at all. And mm-hmm. then I think we were able to receive it with gratitude, right? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm happy to hear, um, this is the, this is the better way to speak about this topic. Um, my sister reached out to me early on and said, Hey, I noticed that you say African American a lot. And I think you're trying to do it to be politically correct, but think about how many people of color would not identify as African American. Yep. And so you should say black. And so I've been trying to do that. And I said, hey, thank you. That's really helpful to me. But that's really different than what I think the, I think a lot of people who are upset about political correctness feel that it is used as a sword instead of as kind of an invitation to sit at the table. That's what we got, right? An invitation to sit at the table. Hey, you're speaking about me. Speak about me in this way. Mm-hmm. Instead of, Hey, you're stupid for saying that, you know, and I think that we have a general dismissiveness happening toward people who are white, toward people of certain economic classes, to people of um, less than graduate levels of education. And I think that that people in the categories and the demographics that I just described feel like everything they say is met with an accusation instead of with something that's meant to inform. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, listen, I was, when I was reading about this, I found several polls. There are definitely a lot of people who feel that way and who feel like we've gone too far. Like I found um, a poll from Fairleigh Dickinson University, result of a survey, 1,026 adults, 68% agreed that political correctness was a problem, 62% of Democrats, 68% of independents, and 81% of Republicans, which there's a pretty big difference there that's interesting. But and also, it said a Rasmussen poll in August found that 71% of 1,000 adult surveys agreed with the statement that political correctness was a problem in America, including 61% of non-whites. So... 
I mean, people clearly feel like that. People feel like they're being denigrated instead of empathized with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like people are people don't feel like um, when the issue of political correctness or the issue of respecting someone else's viewpoint is brought up, that it's not from a place of growth or from a place of, on you know, authentic concern it's more of it's being used as a weapon and you know that's a problem we can't and it just causes people to double down i feel like if you push somebody to be defensive they're really not going to hear what you're saying at all not even a little bit and And that's where i think this has gone from a conversation about language and awareness of each other to a conversation about censorship where people Mm -hmm. feel like no, my position is politically un- incorrect, not just the way that I'm expressing my position. And that is a real problem. And I, but it's so hard though for me. I, I wrote a blog post about this a while back where, you know, at a certain point that we do have to say your position, you know, we don't allow, I don't know, we're not censoring anybody. I think, I guess, I guess what we need to, to talk about is, the consequences of calling someone out for being politically incorrect, right? So if I'm saying, if I'm looking at someone and I'm saying the opinion you hold is offensive, you know, if it's an issue of you're being fired from your job, you're not being allowed to express that in a public forum, if there's like real consequences behind that, um, then that's an issue. But if you're holding offensive beliefs about gay people or offensive beliefs about Muslims, then I don't feel particularly bad for you if there are consequences for those decisions. You know, like, I don't, I don't know where the line is. Like, I, I want to be understanding. I don't want to push people into a defensive position and, you do have a right to your beliefs, but at a certain point we get to, you know, we get to a place in our journey as a nation and as a society where we say, this is not acceptable. Like I remember being with some of my family members one time and we were kind of having this discussion and she was like, no, my opinion isn't wrong. No opinion is wrong. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Some opinions are wrong. Like Hitler's, Hitler's opinion was wrong. Like I I don't, because it's almost like we get, people get so defensive and we, overreact to politically correctness where we get to this spot where well every opinion's okay and that's not true it's not okay for you to think as a woman that because i'm a woman i'm stupid or bad at math or belong in a kitchen like that's offensive and not okay and i you know what i mean like i I don't know really where to draw the line and i feel like you have to be careful also not to get into this territory where every opinion is okay because every opinion is not okay well, every opinion is not okay when you seek to impose that opinion on others, mm-hmm. right? So so take gay marriage as an example. I think you can hold the position that a church, for example, should not sanction gay marriages without that opinion being chastised. Mm. by society. Now, I don't hold that opinion. I I struggle to understand it as a person of faith. But I wouldn't fire someone from a public 
job for holding that position. Now, I would fire Kim Davis, right, who's trying to Ugh. enforce that, to impose that opinion on others, right, and who's literally refusing to do the job yeah. we as a I society would fire have Kim decided Davis that she's she not doing to do. her job. Yeah, you're not doing your job. When you don't do your job, you get fired. It's pretty basic. But, but that's different than sitting there quietly thinking, I don't know about this. You know, like you can have the I don't know about this opinion, I think. And and we shouldn't be wagging our politically correct fingers to the point of you have a serious consequence flowing from holding that opinion. I think I, I think with the conversations with faith, why they get really tricky with issues of political correctness and beliefs is because when you say, um. I have a religious problem or I, you know, I have as a person of faith, I have a problem with gay marriage. You're not really saying I personally have a problem with gay marriage. You're saying I believe God has a problem with gay marriage. And when you bring that extra layer into it, I think that's when people stop feeling bad for trying to push really hard against your opinion. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's something different between saying you know, these are just my, per- this is my personal journey and where I've arrived and saying, no, this is what I think God believes. Like this is, this is my interpretation of theology, or this is what I believe being a Christian means, because then you're really not making it about you. You're making it about other people and, you know, sort of this bigger question of faith. And I think that's why people get, people push back so hard because it becomes a bigger question. It's really not about just the language you use, but now you're arguing something much, much bigger. And I can understand why people get upset about that. I mean, I def- I don't know, truthfully, either way, I don't think using the term or sort of the tools of quote-unquote political correctness is the answer to that discussion. Like, that's really not, that's not how we bring it forward. And even if there are issues there, like just being like, well, that's offensive. Like that doesn't, it just doesn't carry the discussion anywhere productive. But I do understand when people say, when they're, when they're, when an issue of faith is not really just about you sitting quietly and thinking about this because you're, you're making an argument about something much bigger. Well, let me ask a question then. When we did our episode on abortion, I said, up front in sort of my articulation of my beliefs that there are circumstances under which I do think abortion is wrong, right? And, and then I admitted that that comes from my understanding of, of God and the universe. And, and then went on to say, and because of that, like, I shouldn't impose that on anyone else. Is it, is it offensive that I hold that belief because I am saying something about something? I'm, and I'm asking that not to be argumentative. Like, I genuinely no, want to no. understand well, what's funny is after that discussion, I was like, oh, did I not push back hard enough that that like sometimes women have abortions, they feel not an ounce of guilt, they feel not an ounce of negative repercussions. And I don't believe that there's anything wrong with that, or at least there's nothing to co- like I had, I had questions after that conversation about like, sort of the opposite side. But I mean, I, I think that that's a really interesting discussion. And I guess it really just it, it means it, it depends on where you're taking that, right? If you're saying to someone, based on my personal issues of faith, I find your abortion, you know, unethical or wrong, then I think that person has a right to push back and say, well, you know, your personal religious beliefs have nothing to do with my decision. 
Well, and look, I wouldn't say that for someone else. That would be my yeah, calculus exactly. if it were me, because I'm not that person, and I don't know what informs that person's decision. Exactly. But if it were me making that decision, then yeah, there is a set of um, ethics that I would bring to that that mm-hmm. are informed by my faith, and there are circumstances for me personally under which that decision would be wrong. Right. And I. But and see, I, that's different when you're saying I'm making a choice based on my. I, I'm making an ethical consideration based on my personal faith, you know, in every, in every situation would be different. That's, that's a totally different thing than saying, you know, the Bible tells me gay marriage is wrong. So I think that it's important then to like ask those questions, right? Instead of, because I think there are people who would see, and I thought a lot about this. I think there are people who would hear what I have to say about that and see it as some kind of aggressive act, right? Or aggressive statement, Instead of first asking the question, so what does that mean for you as a matter of policy? And this is the problem with dragging religion into politics generally and why I get so upset with people like Mike Huckabee and Ted Cruz. One, you're imposing something on other people. Two, when someone of another faith doesn't even seek to impose that faith on you, you get very hostile about Mm it. And three, all, all religious people are you know, inherently going to be open to accusations and, and the reality of hypocrisy. Um, I listen to Ted Cruz speak and think, I'm not sure where in the Bible Christ said, and then we'll carpet bomb them. You know, it's like, how, how can you hold yourself out this way? I don't know. So I don't want to get too sidetracked by that. I just want to also say, I have read the entire Bible and I did not encounter any passages in which Jesus makes bacon with a machine gun. Also want to put that out there. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, you know, so so there's this conflation of all these issues when you introduce religion as a politician. Mm-hmm. All that being said, I do think we want to live in a country where we can speak about our faith right. and speak about our politics that are informed by our faith. Maybe this gets self-helpy again, though, where you just kind of are self-aware about that and can recognize both why you're believing what you're believing and what, if anything, that should mean about how you feel other people should be affected by your beliefs. That well, was not, and I that really think I, words, I think we're on to something here with regards to the politically correct. Because, right, these are the discussions that get brought up every year. And they say, well, it's, you know, we can't, it's a war on Christmas, right? I feel like oh. the war on Christmas is definitely a part of this politically correct discussion. Oh, well, you can't say anything. You can't be a Christian. You can't talk about your faith. It's not politically correct. The politically correct police are going to come after you. And Starbucks had a red cup, and let's all just lose it. And that really bothers me because the idea that politically correct is the reason that you can't use any and all public forums as a soapbox soapbox for your religious beliefs I just, I don't, the, I, it really, it, it pushes me right into Julia Sugarbaker territory. The idea of I, Christians are being persecuted and we can't speak, you know, we can't speak about our beliefs. And I think, honestly, I think there's a connection between gay marriage. I think a lot of evangelical Christians feel like, well, now all of a sudden I can't talk about my religion because my religion says that gay, being gay is wrong. And I get beat down by the PC police because that's offensive. And while I do understand 
you know, where this is, where they're coming from to a certain extent, that doesn't make it right. Well, also, there, you you can do whatever you want to, right? Like, yeah, exactly. That's what else is supposed to be like. Nobody's locking you up. No one's yeah, going I mean, to jail except for those gay marriage baker people. I think they went to jail, maybe. I'm not really sure why me saying happy holidays is upsetting to anybody else. I mean, I loved the thing that was going around Facebook for a while. It was one of the few like memes that I thought, hey, this is a good one. Um, <laughs> but but it said something like, hey, if somebody says happy holidays, you know what you say? To you, too. If someone says happy Hanukkah, you say right back at you. You know, it's like, <laughs> and this is not hard, people, you know, yeah. <laughs> and because I, I think that's the thing. Like political correctness was supposed to be a way for us to be respectful of people who are different than we are instead of um, a new set of rules for engagement with each other in society that you, you know, drop through the floor into a pit of mud or something if you violate them. I mean, that's the thing. There are no real consequences here. No, so if you believe, if you believe what you believe with so much fervor, then exactly like you said, then maybe you don't care if somebody comes at you um, harshly as right. a result. And isn't there an element of like thou dost protest too much? Like yes. if you are so worried about the persecution of your religious beliefs or like, you know, if you're, if you believe all this so strongly and you believe that you were right and more importantly, you believe that God is on your side, then really what does it matter if I send happy holidays cards? What does it matter if Starbucks has a red cup? What does it matter if nobody, if no government entity no city hall no congress no anybody anywhere puts up another christmas tree till the ends of the earth does that matter like is one of the you know is the you know i grew up i read the whole bible i don't really remember any you know cornerstone of jesus's beliefs being about public displays of religion being essential to someone's faith right you're supposed to pray in a corner quite the opposite yeah so i don't you know if if the issue is that you feel like you can't I don't really understand the importance of being able to publicly express your religious beliefs. Like this isn't China. You're not going jail to, for witnessing to somebody that, I mean, there are, there are Christians in the world being legitimately persecuted for trying to practice their faith, but it's not happening here. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, 
It could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Well, so I want to talk about Donald Trump. Can we talk about Donald Trump? Please. No I know that Why we did don't I love say to that? talk about oh Donald Trump. Oh, my God. What ha- what's the matter with me? <laughs> well, no. So obviously, I think if you boiled down the Trump campaign rationale, a lot of it is just, I'm not going to be politically correct. And he says often, I don't have time for political correctness, which I oh, think is, that is a thing? just oh, I didn't amazing. Know But, okay, so I've had a hard time understanding the Donald Trump phenomenon. Two things have helped me at least form kind of a a working theory. I was in the car for work last week. I turned on the radio, and they were playing just unfiltered audio live from a Trump event in New Hampshire. And I, you know, thought, I can't do this. But then I listened for a couple minutes, and I was hooked, and my couple minutes turned into staying with the entire duration of the event, which went for over an hour. And um, I'm listening to him and he just sounds like he's sitting in like a lazy boy at your uncle's house or something talking about things. (laughs) He was telling a story about how he so fervently dislikes the uh, union leader in New Hampshire because they endorse Chris Christie. And as he's telling the story, he's talking about being at an event with the editor and he says, yeah, I had a hamburger. It was delicious. Like he just kind of weaves all over the place. And I think that what kind of pulled me in and must pull other people in is that it's just such a departure from the Mm -hmm. calculated, you know, 15 drafts written by junior staffers kind of speech that you hear from most politicians. And there's just something kind of 
I can't believe I'm going to use this word, but remarkably warm about hearing someone so off the cuff, even when he's saying, you know, things that really make my head explode, the way he's saying it, I think it creates a sense of trust that you don't feel about actual politicians. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been thinking about sort of some of people's critique of Hillary Clinton and this idea that she's so, um, you know, calculated and sort of the appeal of Bernie Sanders, which for, I think, progressives isn't dissimilar to the appeal of Donald Trump. Yes, he's a seasoned politician, which for some reason, some of those people seem to forget. But he's, you know, it has a very spontaneous, authentic quality. And I just think, though, that at the end of the day, you know, politicians, especially to the level of being the president of the United States, they're not activists. And to a certain extent, I think, like, that's sort of the crowd Donald Trump has right now. They're not activists. That's not their job. Their job isn't to, you know, find this radical reform that must be enacted. Like, that's just, that's not the job. The job is to represent the United States of America, which has a very diverse, broad population. And so I think, you know... Ultimately, that's why the, I, I pray every night before I go to sleep that Donald Trump's candidacy will fail because, you know, it's appealing, but it only appeals to the people not offended by your authentic opinions. And I think that at the end of the day, a lot of people are and, you know, carefully crafted and even politically correct speeches serve to appeal to a broad audience. And that's important you're representing a broad audience. I want you to appeal to a lot of people at once. And if that means that you, and honestly, I think that Barack Obama's appeal for better, for worse, particularly in built somebody like Bill Clinton, their speeches are so good because they can say very little, but feel like every person in the room is being, you know, spoken to and about. But see, I think that's what Trump is doing. I think even though he is excluding a lot of people through his language, the people who he's really trying to speak to feel so much more connected. You know, I well, that's what, no, of, I agree. I think he's doing that. He's just not doing it smartly, right? Like he's just, he's, it's sort of like a blunt force approach, right? He's just going to say it. It's appealing to a certain, but to, to be able to do that on a grand scale, like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama are able to do this particular, you know, just this, I can say this, it feels so authentic, but it feels authentic to so many people. Like Donald Trump, I don't think, he doesn't feel authentic to everybody. Or maybe, I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe even, you know, when you're listening to him and he's offending, you're like, well, gosh, at least he's telling the truth. But I, I think it's a tougher political skill to do it in the way Barack Obama and Bill Clinton do it, which is to do it and make, without offending, you know, a huge portion of the population. Well, the other thing I've been thinking about with Trump is that he does. So here you have this guy who's been very successful and we can all debate, you know, how the fact that he was kind of born on third and acts like he hit a triple and all of that. But, you know, he does relate to people of all economic classes very skillfully. No. And, And people of all levels of education. You know, we have gotten pretty nasty in this country in terms of dividing ourselves mm-hmm. by levels of education, I think. 
You know, people even <laughs> even the stuff on um, social media where you have the grammar police constantly. I mean, I don't understand people who are so proud of their interest in grammar. I really don't. And I love the written word. But come on. Like, I don't know. The people who are constantly correcting other people and posting just nasty things about your conv- confusion of the different ways to spell there. You know, I can. I have an irresistible urge to make to incorrectly use less and fewer because that's my husband's number one grammar problem and I still don't get it right but I'll 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 resist. Well, you know, I I work in a law firm and there is there is no place that is more meticulous about about mm-hmm. language. And 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 it's kind of it's beca- it comes becomes a game, right? And kind of an intellectual exercise and everyone is so proud of those skills. Like 99% of the world just rolls their eyes at that stuff. And that doesn't make it mm-hmm. unimportant. But also, like when you post those kinds of things on social media, you're setting up an us versus them, right? Yeah. And, and I can't imagine if I'm a person who confuses my theirs on a regular basis, that message to me is you're stupid, right? You're not yeah. as good as I am. You're And Donald Trump just blows all of that out of the water. I've been thinking about writing something about the Trump candidacy. And then I step back and say, like, the world doesn't need another voice on this because everybody's writing about it. But that thought in and of itself is like the antithesis of Donald Trump, because his his whole thing is, no, everybody matters, right? You, mm. Even though I'm saying things that are going to alienate a lot of everybody, everybody be loud. Everybody's important. Come to my rally. And he's doing this without doing the typical retail politics, right? Mark Halperin said on Showtime's The Circus, which is fabulous and everyone should go watch, by the way, that, you know, Trump goes wholesale. He has these giant <laughs> events. But people leave those events feeling more connected to him than leaving, you know, an intimate New Hampshire gathering with some other politician. It's just it's really amazing. It's really, really amazing. And I think it does speak to the fact that maybe we've taken political correctness to a point or or took that concept right and blew it up into something entirely different where people feel like unless you are, you know, Ivy League educated very liberal in your beliefs that anything you say is met with sort of um, dismissiveness on the parts of others. I don't know. No, I definitely think that's it. And I think that, I mean, I guess the problem is with politically correctness, you know, there's a plugin for Chrome that you can use and it will replace the word politically correct with treat others with respect, (laughs) which I think is pretty funny. But I don't understand how along the way, Asking to be treated with respect gave you permission to disrespect the other person. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. The being because someone is saying something offensive does not mean, you know, I, there's really, and I guess the hypocrisy of this is what upsets people who are opposed to politically correctness so much. It's a very difficult intellectual exercise to demand someone treat you with respect while disrespecting them, to demand that someone acknowledge your humanity while simultaneously robbing them of theirs. And I think that happens a lot. And I think if I'm being very honest, it happens a lot on the liberal side. It's everybody deserves respect, but you're an idiot. You know, like you can't, it doesn't work like that. (laughs) And do I believe that, there is value in education. Do I believe that people who are highly educated have a perspective that is important that 
brings an added layer to the table. Absolutely. And I'm never going to be somebody who um, sort of that, you know, that kind of George Bush, the insulting of being highly educated. Like, I don't have a problem with people who being highly educated. But if you're educated enough to 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 sort of take on that mantle, then you have to acknowledge the nuance and you have to acknowledge that we're not going to get anywhere to insult somebody who's not as educated as you. Like, that's just absurd and it doesn't take the discussion anywhere. You know, and my kind of thought process always is even somebody who is racist, even somebody who is, and I'm not talking about somebody who says something racist. I'm talking about somebody that is racist. That's not all they are. Right. They're still a human being and they're still complex. And even if their belief system and the beliefs you find totally offensive and simplistic and even ignorant, like it, it's, that's not the whole, I don't want to be judged by the entirety of my opinions and I'm not going to judge somebody else on the entirety of theirs. So, I mean, I think that's the PC police. I mean, I think there's definitely harm in that. I guess that's why that quote from the optimist article stuck up to me because I'm an optimist and I really, I don't want to take it off the table because I think there is something to be gained in being truly empathetic and in good faith, trying to understand where another person is coming from, but that has to work both ways. Absolutely. I've been thinking about that on a much lighter scale with the term mansplaining because um, Mm. my husband hates it. So does mine. So does mine. And I use it because, and I think you said this and I thought it was so true. Like, I'm excited to have a word for this experience that I have all the time of getting Mm -hmm. about one minute of speech compared to 10 minutes from, you know, a colleague or, um, or, or some other man. And, and I don't think men do this in a nefarious way at all. I just think it's kind of a pattern that we've fallen into. And so I, I like having a word for that, but but also I realize that maybe that word is kind of insulting and I need to find a different way to express my frustration. Oh, but it's so good. I don't want to give up man's point. Well, I know, but, I it, but it's it so the same much. thing, right? It's like I don't – just because someone is making me feel frustrated and less than um, – my way of pointing that out to the person needs to be gracious too, right? So I, I'm trying well, to work Well, you know what that. it kind of re- – that kind of reminds me of this discussion I had, or this a really great piece I read in Cheryl Strade's uh, Tiny Beautiful Things. It's her Dear Sugar Advice column collection, which it, I <laughs> highly recommend. It is so good. Um, but she was ta- she was talking to somebody who's um, overheard their he, this man overheard his friends talking about him basically, and it he felt betrayed and he felt very hurt. And she did this really beautiful thing about, look, when we're talking about our friends, when they're not around, we're not filtering in the same way. We're not thinking about what it means to them. We're just trying to work through it. And if your friends cared enough to talk to each other and were worried about you, then that means they love you. And they weren't censoring like you would have been in the room. And so you're hurt because you heard things you weren't supposed to hear. But it doesn't mean that they don't love you. And I think, honestly, with mansplaining and with some of these PC terms, I think what happened is we were talking about it amongst each other. So women were talking um, about mansplaining together and we were saying oh my god mansplaining yes that makes so much sense and we loved it so much and it felt so good together that we forgot it doesn't automatically work when in front of the person we're talking about and I think that maybe happened with a lot of politically correct things like it just after being walked over and 
you know, experienced sexual harassment or homophobia and all these things for so long. And finally, we got the language and the power to say that's offensive that we forgot, like, it really doesn't work the same way when the audience changes the way we talk about it and the way we're dismissive of how somebody's ignorant, even though that feels good around a bunch of women. And there's really nothing wrong with that per se. I don't think when the audience changes and when you bring a man into it, you can't just be like, "Ugh, mansplainer. Cause the man is not going to be like, ha ha ha. You're so right. Like a woman would, you know, like it's not going to work like that. You have to, there needs to be sort of an editing process when you find language to name offensive behavior and then you try to then point out that offensive behavior. It just it has to change a little bit. It has to shift. Well, I think that's a really good point. And, and are we surprised that we kind of end up back at, can we all just assume that we're doing the best we can also, you yeah. know, and can we just have good intent in these conversations? Because I think that's our conclusion, right? Political correctness has a place as long as people on both sides of it approach the other person with respect and, and grace. Mm-hmm. Oh, grace. You know, that's my new favorite quote is grace will take you place. Hustle can't. Yeah, I love it. And grace has been my Donald Trump. I know you do the one word each year. You. you know, grace is my word for 2016. Just Oh, I like it. That's my cousin's word, too. Well, so next we are going to uh, shift gears and talk about something more personal in the heels. So Sarah, we wanted to talk about our favorite subscription services today. And why don't you start? You have a good one. Um, Yes, my mother-in-law subscribed um, both Griffin and Amos to this really great service called Radish Box and it is a little box that arrives and this is like a sibling you can add on like kind of like a sibling add-on to the subscription and so every month we get this little set of recipes and sort of like a craft and there's a skill card so like one month they'll be working on on grading and they'll each get little box graders and the very first box came with an apron and then every month they get like a little patch to iron on their apron for the skill they learned and we make the little meal we like in December um, the craft was we made those little poppers you pop open and you get like little paper crowns but they've made like lemonade stands and um, oh and they also give you these little discussion cards to sit down at dinner and kind of talk through these little conversation cards it's just really well put together, um, well done, you know, and if you have picky eaters, they always say like helping them, having them involved in the cooking process really helps expand their palates and makes them sort of invested in trying the food. And we just had, I don't really have picky eaters, but we just, it's been really fun and we've really enjoyed it. They did sushi one time, which was really awesome. Now, how old are Griffin um, and so Amos? Griffin is six and Amos is four. And do you think this works for, is, are they like exactly the right ages for this? Could you go older or younger? Oh, you could definitely go older. I mean, the girl who recommended it to us is is a sixth grader at church, and she's, like, all about it. I don't know if you'd want to go much younger than Amos. Um, he's sort of into it, not as much as Griffin is. But, I mean, he, he was into the sushi, really. But, you know, four-year-olds, they're a crapshoot. Who knows? But I, I definitely think you could go older. Well, that sounds really fun. Um, my sub- favorite subscription service is All About Me. it's one of the few things that I feel like is just for me. And I think that's part of why I love it. I love Birchbox. 
Um, so Birchbox is a cosmetic subscription service. Every month you get, I think it's five um, samples, and it's just a, a range, and you make some selections based on your skin type, hair type, kind of what you enjoy. But um, but you get, you know, shampoo. I just got a really great eyeliner and a fun nail color. Um, I don't buy any makeup anymore, really, other than like foundation powder and mascara because I just use what comes in my Birchbox, and it pushes me to try things that I never would have picked up. That's what I was going to say. I really feel like I'm in a makeup rut in a serious way, and I wonder if that would help. I think it would because, I, you know, they send me colors that I never would have used. I got around Christmas this um, really dark green and then this very, like, luminescent gold eyeshadow. I mm. never would have picked them up, and I really enjoyed them. And the app um, that comes with it, you know, you can use the app, and it has all kinds of, like, makeup tutorials. And I don't use that stuff a lot because I am kind of a rut person. Like, I pretty much look the same way every day, but I really enjoy all these products. Um, I use them for, you know, travel and it's just great. And you can limit, like, I don't love fragrances. You can limit your fragrances and you accumulate points for rating things. I don't know. You can get way into it if you have the time and inclination to do that, but it's just a lot of fun to get good mail that just feels like you. Oh, and also the boxes are very pretty and different every month and they label the outside. Like sometimes it'll say like the vivacious Beth Silvers or something like that. And it's just fun. It's really, it's really, really fun. Love it. Well, maybe we'll get on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Pantsuit Politic, or like us on Facebook and tell us your favorite subscription boxes. And we'll share, I have a, actually had a, a gift guide that I did on subscription boxes a while back, and I'll post that too. And as always, if you can rate us on iTunes, that helps other people find Pantsuit Politics. Thanks to my husband, Nicholas, um, for executive producing this show. And as always, keep it nuanced, y'all. <laughs>